and I will now uh, bring in our uh, our next panel. Um, so as I as I mentioned off the top, uh, we we have some returning we have some returning guests to this forum this year. Um, we we have the, the good pleasure of being joined now by uh, Dom Adabi-Leach, uh, who's with the Center of Excellence for Indigenous Minerals Development, and she's also the Vice Chair of the National Indigenous Economic Development Board. Uh, Clayton Walker is also with us. He's the President and CEO of the Iron Ore Company of Canada. And we have Tannis Peterson, who's the Executive Director of the Schwetten Railway. Uh, I want to thank you all very much for uh, for joining me today. Um, and, and I think a, a quick bit of context here, and, and Don, I'll, I'll go to you very shortly for some opening uh, remarks, but it's, it, it has been over uh, a year since the launch of the Center of Excellence for Indigenous Minerals Development. That happened last year at this event in Ottawa at, at the Westin, um, overlooking downtown Ottawa. It was a great event. It was a great launch. Uh, it's been a bit of a year, <laughs> obviously, since that launch. And, and I want to go around for some introductory remarks, but I'm going to start with you, Don. Um, perhaps you can sort of catch us up to speed on what's happened since and, uh, and provide us a bit of context uh, for our conversation today. So, Don, welcome. Miigwech. Ani Buju. Bidabin Dishnakaz. Jijak Dodim. Nadom Nasing Mina. Wigwaskinaga. Donjaba. Good morning, everyone. As mentioned, my name is Don Madabi Leach, and I'm the Vice Chair of the National Indigenous Economic Development Board and the Manager of the Wabatec Business Development, as well as, uh, 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 as, well as uh, I guess, a founder of the Center of Excellence for Indigenous Minerals Development. So I'm honored to be here with you today to share some of the national initiatives to assist Indigenous people, industry, and government to involve Indigenous people in Canada's economy in a more meaningful and profound way. These initiatives are about having Indigenous people being part of the solution and all decisions affecting us. One of the initiatives is the Centre of Excellence for Indigenous Minerals Development, which is an entity to share leading practices, case studies, templates, research, expert referrals, and generally act as an information clearinghouse of uh, with respect to the mining sector. Uh, as, you, as mentioned, because of COVID, things have been a little bit slow, but we've been working on all of the uh, uh, work behind the scenes, the database, getting the information together for the uh, supply of these services. So the Centre is a partnership that involves the First Nations, the Government of Canada, and industry. So at this point in time, the government, uh, government partners are FedNor and Natural Resources Canada. Our industry partner is Rio Tinto, who have provided significant financial support, as well as open doors for us uh, to the, in the industry. I just want to mention we welcome other industry partners to join in this exciting partnership as well. So please don't hesitate to let me know of, of your interest. The Centre is the type of initiative that builds Indigenous capacity. It includes an Indigenous lens on industry matters and can be replicated in many sectors. Cre creating Indigenous institutional capacity helps to create new networks and bridge understanding that brings perspective, traditional knowledge, 
and significant value to economic development that is otherwise missed. So I look forward to exploring this a little further with you as we uh, delve into this conversation uh, in a deeper way. Miigwech. Miigwech. Thank you very much, Dawn. Um, Clayton, I'm going to go to you next because I saw you smiling and nodding, particularly when uh, Dawn was talking about corporate partners and getting involved. So um, Clayton, I'll bring you in here if you could um, share some opening thoughts. Uh, yeah, thanks, Alex. And uh, look, it's a pleasure to be with all of you today and uh, really honored to be here with Dawn and uh, Tannis to talk about these opportunities and how we create partnerships. Uh, I thought just a minute just to let people know who Iron Ore Company of Canada is, is we actually produce high-grade iron ore pellets and concentrate, which is sold uh, globally and is used to produce steel, uh, high-quality steel around the world. To do that, we have uh, five mines or pits located in Labrador. We have a concentrator and a pellet plant. We then have a 418-kilometer railway that links those operations with our, our deep-sea port down in Satil. And to make all that happen, we employ around 2,600 uh, people and uh, create about 6,000 indirect and direct jobs in that region to make all that work. So that's kind of who we are and, and how that works. And uh, in order to do that, though, there's five different indigenous groups that we interact with in that area that we do. And a key to making us successful is also how we interact and build those partnerships with them. And I uh, hopefully will get a chance to share some of my ideas on how to make those things work. Thanks very much, Clayton. Uh, Tannis, uh, some opening thoughts to yourself. Tannis Peterson. Good morning, and thank you very much, Alex, and uh, Canada 2020 for, for putting this on. Uh, for starters, um, well, I think that, that for, for me, the star is, is the company that, that I'm working with now. So I'm going to start with that instead of focusing on on. What I've done, uh, Tritin is a, a federally regulated railway that's um, operating in, in northern Quebec and, and Newfoundland. Um, we, I joined, I joined them. Uh, I had the privilege of joining them uh, this year, uh, but their journey actually has started over 15 years ago. We just we are celebrating currently the 15th anniversary of the company, so we're very very proud of that. Um, in, in fact, even though 15 years is not well, a long time ago, um, I think it's a sign that that you know they, they, there was innovative thinking by the communities who own the railway and and the drive. Because I can tell you from my experience, railway is not necessarily an easy business to get into. <laughs> so never mind those conditions. Um, yes, so um, it, it it actually was a historical first. the The railway was the first Indigenous owned railway in Canada. Um, and that was with the Inuit communities of Washat Manitidem and Manimekush John, as well as the Naskepi uh, Nation. So we, we do uh, passenger train service, uh, freight service, as well as we do transport some iron ore uh, from a, uh, I guess it would be competitor of Clayton, <laughs> uh, down, down on our track. We own 215-ish kilometers uh, from Emerald Labrador, which is um, not too, too far from Wabush, uh, Labrador City area, up until Shefferville. We offer the passenger service actually from Setzil up to Shefferville. Um, and that's through actually a contract of, uh, we, we use the QNSNL rail line on, on that first portion. And that's the, the um, owned by IOC, uh, their railway. Well, thank you very much. That's um that's that's good context, I think, for for the rest of the conversation today. 
I think where I want to go next is is kind of the crux of a lot of the conversations that we're going to be having today. And I think what we're trying to get at through the events that we have done here at Canada 2020, which is really trying to analyze like what makes economic partnerships between industry and indigenous communities successful. Because right? if we can get at that, I mean, there's obviously tremendous learning that we can extrapolate outwards and carry forwards. So Clayton, why don't I start with you? What, what do you think makes a successful partnership? Uh, thanks, Alex. Uh, look, I, I think it's a big question, right? Is uh, how do you make all of this stuff happen? And when I think about it, uh, it, it really comes down to two things. And, uh, uh, it's commitment and trust, and I'll, ex- I'll explain that in a minute. Um, if you th- if you think about how do you get to there, it's it's a it's a long road, and I think you first start off with um, IBAs or agreements. And I'm I'm proud to say it, at IOC we've now have agreements with four of the five groups that we interact with, and um, those don't just happen. And that's where that commitment comes in. You have to have a desire to make it work. And uh, look, a lot of work. I was really pleased. Just two weeks ago, we signed our agreement with MLJ and Itum, and uh, it, years in the making. And it, it goes and comes, right? But you have to stay committed to that process. But all an IBA does is it gives you a framework. In order to bring it to life, I think the, real, the secret sauce is all around how do you build trust between the two parties or three parties or four parties, however many you have. You have to build the trust. And it comes back to building that. And so first you're going to be committed because you're starting from different points. You're going to have different views, different goals. So you got to be committed to going through that process. And then the next piece is you actually, you got to take the time to listen. I, I like to tell my team, you have two ears and one mouth and you need to use them appropriately. And so by listening, we're able to understand what each other value or doesn't value and how can we help kind of bridge that gap? What do we bring? What don't we bring? How can we help each other learn? And as we as we listen and gain that understanding, we start to form a foundation of trust. And once we built that trust, then it gets a lot easier to help bring that economic value to life. And uh, look, you don't have to have an IBA to do that to build that trust. All the IBA does is give you that structure to help you make it make it more uh, feasible to get that done. Um, I think of some examples, you know, is uh, we recently worked on a project with the Nazca P on bringing broadband into the local community, which now that COVID's happened has been a, a really big win for that local community to have access. They were able to use the infrastructure along the railway that we use to help bring the broadband in. And it was really just a, a win-win. But it's because we were in talks and conversations and understanding what were their needs. What could we do? We can't. We can't build or buy everything, but we can use some of our stuff to help make theirs work. And it's that partnership based on those conversations that made that happen. Um, and I'm sure Tanis will talk about it, but the Shuaton Railway is another great example of a partnership that's working that's based on trust. You have to stay committed. Everyone's got their views and what they want. But if you're committed to it and you trust each other, that's what opens up the real economic value that these different partnerships can bring. So I think that would be my, uh, my uh, quick summary on how you, how you actually bring the value out of those agreements, Alex. 
a, a good quick summary to, as you mentioned, a, a complex process, right? And I, I'm, I'm mindful that of something that um, National Chief Perry Belgard has said on our stage, and I'm sure we've all heard him say it many times, before you build anything, build a relationship. Um, so I think that fits really nicely into that. Uh, Tannis, um, Clayton referenced um, you and your work. Let's, let's go to you. What, what do you think makes a, a successful uh, partnership? Well, a successful partnership. First, actually, I'll probably talk about the infrastructure piece um, because uh, we have, being an Indigenous-owned railway, we do have a little bit of a different aspect. We can have a direct impact um, in the communities for employment. We have a direct impact to prioritize Indigenous-owned local businesses when possible. Um, so the infrastructure is really core to... Um, well, geez, we all know this, that it's core to any business development, period. And in, in our case, with the rail infrastructure, it's not only a core piece of the economic development for the area, but it is essential service. It's not even a want to be. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure if people are aware, there's only two means of transport up to, to Shefferville. One is by air and one is by rail. There are no roads. So if we're looking at, um, you know, essential food for people, medicine, all sorts of supplies, uh, this is all uh, brought up by, by railway. And then we add on to the, the fact that literally probably every single business that does operate or offer services to the Shefferville area will have to um, ship up their, their supplies and their merchandise uh, with the railway, including even... Uh, the, the competitor mind that we were talking about uh, for, for large machines, uh, you know, machineries to keep their minds open, uh, which is also uh, has an impact on the economy. So there are many different, uh, different levels of, of partnerships that have to be maintained in that environment. Um, and uh, even our partnership with the environment, throwing that in there, I know it's not the topic of the day, but just kind of plugging it. Rail is the, uh, the most um, environmentally friendly means of transport. So just throw that in. That's a good throw, and I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> um, Don, let's 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 go to you. I mean, uh, I think you've obviously got your 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 own you know thoughts on this, but you know, also feel free to build on a lot of the great points that Clayton and, and, and Tannis have made. What's what's key to a good partnership? Well, I think another path to forge economic partnerships is through procurement. Uh, one of the other national initiatives that I've been working on with people like Tabitha Bull at the Canadian Council for Indigenous Business is the development of a national database of Indigenous businesses from every economic sector across every region in Canada. So we're really interested in uh, a model similar to the one that exists in Australia known as Supply Nation. They've been very successful in procuring contracts for Indigenous businesses there, primarily in the private sector. In fact, they've exceeded uh, a lot of the procurement targets, uh, and uh, that has a lot to do with Supply Nation. So we're now taking steps here to have a business plan completed for an entity here in Canada, which, uh, uh, which we think, uh, based on the same mo uh, similar model, we believe that there's a value in, in a possible global branding to assist companies to support and acquire goods and services for, uh, from um, Indigenous uh, businesses globally. And there's also an interest from Indigenous people from other countries in a uh, 
coming together with a similar brand and, and concept. So one of the most important features of such an entity is that it will certify Indigenous businesses. In doing this, we currently have a group of uh, people who will be working on the definition of ind an Indigenous business in Canada, as this is critical to the process of procurement. We believe it's critically important that Indigenous people develop this definition. You know, unfortunately, today there are businesses um, that have taken advantage of procurement opportunities and set asides for uh, Indigenous uh, uh, people. Uh, you know, by, unfortunately, there's shell companies or uh, sometimes, um, you know, I come across this uh, uh, individuals professing to be Indigenous. And uh, uh, in, in order to access some of the contracts out there. So we really want to see um, the social and economic benefits uh, go to the Indigenous people, the Indigenous communities. Um, and so this is really an important step, I think, in, in uh, addressing this need. But um, with a certification process that is agreed upon by Indigenous people, uh, at companies and governments who are looking to procure Indigenous businesses from the database will have the assurance that they're indeed contracting an Indigenous business. There's also going to be a process of con uh, continuous recertification as companies change or wind down. It will also help measure uh, whether or not procurement targets are, are being met. But um, I think for sure this entity will be a source of information and supports to Indigenous businesses as well. So stay tuned as this initiative progresses over 2021. We're, we absolutely will. And hopefully we'll have you back uh, at the end of 2021 for, uh, for, for another exciting update. Um, I, I'm mindful that we've got like, you know, five, six, six minutes left here. And I didn't want to leave without really diving in on uh, on infrastructure. I think each of you have like a really unique and important perspective on the role that that plays in in, in building lasting partnerships with with indigenous communities and, and industry. Um, Tanis, you've already touched on it a little bit, I'm, but I'm hoping that we can dive in just a, a little bit further. You know, how can infrastructure, which as we know is going to be really central to recovery efforts and, and, and a lot of spending efforts that are, are, are coming down the, the, the pipe. Um, how can infrastructure play a, a, a role in facilitating good partnerships between industry and, and communities? So, yeah, I did already touch on, on the infrastructure piece a little bit um, and then and going into the relationships that we need to maintain and, and continually work on. Uh, to maintain the service. So our, our passenger service, uh, that portion of our business is subsidized by Transport Canada. Um, and so we not only need to continue that uh, great relationship that we have with Transport Canada in that facet, um, I, I really want to step forward and work in other, um, in other areas uh, because as I had mentioned about the essential services of just the goods and, and whatnot, uh, we, we need to uh, reinvest a lot uh, coming up, we need to reinvest a lot or invest a lot in, into the track, into the equipment that we have, we will create, which will create new relationships all across the board um, in order to, uh, 
to get the work done. Um, and interesting enough, um, you know, talking about partnerships and, and work relationships, uh, being a railway, um, again, um, I think actually uh, Minister Miller was touching on this too. But, uh, we can't necessarily just stay in our own uh, communities either. We need to be working with all of the railways that are across North America in order to learn best practices and to, to, to continuously improve our our, uh, our the quality of our services. So that partnership is also very, very important to work with. Uh, and, and we can give back as well. If we look at the, the North American rail industry, where uniquely uh, um, the, the climate conditions are just treacherous. <laughs> um, it does exist in a couple other places, but not that many. So even even there's a benefit that can uh, go worldwide through what we can offer as learning experiences, partnering with academia and and those those partners as well. That's great, um, Don. I'll I'll bring you in. Um, thoughts on thoughts on infrastructure's important role here. Mm-hmm. When when we speak about infrastructure, I believe it's vitally important to recognize the importance of institutional infrastructure. In this respect, I'm I'm referring to Indigenous-owned and controlled institutions. This is one of the recommendations in the first ever OECD report on Indigenous economic development um, that was, uh, you know, in the whole history of that international organization. So this is one of the recommendations about institutional infrastructure for Indigenous people. This concept is similar to the Center of Excellence uh, for Indigenous Minerals Development that I referred to earlier, where this institution is uh, information clearinghouse uh, so that uh, Indigenous communities and, uh, uh, and, and our people can find information they need to make a good decision. Or, you know, it's also similar to the existing National Aboriginal Capital Corporations Association, who helps Indigenous financial institutions to share leading practices on lending on reserve or managing their loan portfolios, or the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, uh, who builds relationships and understanding between Indigenous businesses and corporate Canada. These institutions are centres of knowledge, leading practices, research, databases that help build Indigenous capacity. We need these types of institutions in every sector to keep on top of leading practices so that we're not reinventing the wheel every time we do something. Instead, we would be building on success, the success, for example, the Clearwater um, business uh, success. People generally don't know what they don't know. So these institutions would be a way uh, to mitigate risks and be preventative in terms of avoiding the, uh, the track of making the same mistakes over and over. We need such institutions for physical infrastructure, for food security, for lands management, for energy, STEM programming. Um, I I really think that uh, having Indigenous people, government and corporate Canada uh, involved can play a role in supporting this uh, Indigenous institutional development. And I, I think it's really key when we talk about infrastructure. Don, I love I love the idea of institutional infrastructure. I think that's just such a great frame to bring into this conversation. I think that's really important and something that we could probably build more on as we extend into 2021. So I'm, I'm going to call you. <laughs> we'll talk, um, Clayton. I'm going to I'm going to give last word to, to you. Um, maybe tie a couple of these thoughts together and and uh, bring us home on the idea of uh, infrastructure and, and partnerships. 
All right, I'll I'll give it a go, Alex. Um, I, look, uh, as I listen to to what Don and, and Tannis had to say, you you really see the importance of infrastructure, right? Whether it's the basic needs or it's providing opportunity, but for businesses like IOC, where we have a big infrastructure base, what it does is it it creates that opportunity, whether that's through procurement, whether it's through jobs, whether it's through uh, the partnership, like we have with the tuition railway where we do some maintenance, they do some, and we, we share ideas, even share some parts at times. But I, I think that's the role is how do we unlock that infrastructure to create opportunity? You know, to me, it's not just about the roads or the, uh, the railways or the power lines. What there also needs to be is some social infrastructure put in place. And as we build that social infrastructure, it allows us then to connect to the physicals that open up those doors, that create opportunities. And once we have opportunities, that's where I think the real work and, and, and change, and I really want to emphasize change, that's where change begins. If we don't ever open up those doors, if we don't unlock that opportunity, we'll continue down the path that we've been on, which I think we all agree is an unacceptable path. So I think my challenge to everybody on the, on the call today is, what are you doing to help unlock or open the door? And as we work together to open those doors, we have the infrastructure in place. We've got a great country. There's plenty of opportunity. It's how do we do that? And I think maybe maybe I'll change it slightly and say, how do we put some social infrastructure in place to help unlock the physical so that we can continue to move forward? And as I said earlier, I think that all gets back to trust, respect, and understanding. And um I think one thing we've been trying to do in, in our business is really create a better understanding. You know, we now have a mandatory cultural awareness training and it's really to help understand the culture and the history of these different groups that we interact with. So we, we get a, a perspective on where they're coming from, what they see. And as we see that, we can then help unlock some of these doors to create those opportunities. And I, I'm just a big believer. And if you give people opportunity, uh, they're going to take it and good things are going to happen. And uh, that's a role we all have to play. So Alex, I think that's, uh, I guess my challenge to everyone is what are you doing to unlock a door for one of these, uh, one of these groups? That's a perfect way to end it. I would say, uh, Clayton, uh, stuck to landing there on this conversation for us. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, like I said, there's a lot to follow up here. I think that there's obviously more for us to dive in than 25 minutes allows us to do, uh, as we all know. Um, but I really, really appreciate uh, your time, all three of you. Um, Don, it was great to hear uh, an update in, on, on how the center is going and, and Clayton and Tannis, uh, your unique roles in the, in the ecosystem here. Um, like I said, uh, you're, you're, we'll, 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 we'll talk because I think there's more work to be done here. Um, so Damadabi Leach, Clayton Walker, Tannis Peterson, I really want to thank you very much um, for your time today. Miigwech. Thank uh, you, I'm now, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Clayton. So I'm now going to bring in, um, who I believe we have uh, on, on the line here, uh, Crystal Smith, the Chief Counselor of the, uh, the Heisla Nation. And Susanna Pierce, uh, Director of, uh, of Corporate Affairs at LNG Canada. Uh, Crystal, there you are. I can see you, which is great. And there's Susanna as well. Hi, how are you doing? Um, 
it's it's good to it's good to see you both. Uh, we are going to go for I think about you know twenty ish minutes here, um, and uh, I think that maybe what I might want to do is is just do a, a quick level set here because this is not the first time that we've had a chance to connect and speak. Um, uh, both uh, yourself, um, uh, Crystal and, and Susanna, uh, were played a role in an event that Canada 2020 did shortly after the announcement of the uh, LNG project. And I think that's kind of what we wanted to talk about today because it was a historic uh, project when it was announced. And it's, it's certainly, um, uh, I think, uh, been held up as a, a, a real example of what success looks like. But for people who are on the call, um, that need a bit of a primer on that, uh, on sort of the, the short history of how the, the, the relationship developed and how the project came to be. Um, can I go to you, Susanna, first? Can you just give us a, 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 a quick history on how it started off and, and, and where we are right now? Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm actually dialing in from the traditional territory, the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh. I'm in downtown Vancouver in my office today, which is an unusual thing simply because many folks are working from home. But the bandwidth is a little bit better here, so I thought I'd, I'd give it a shot. And, you know, the relationship um, with the Heisla began many years ago, really. I mean, I think it's almost 12 years ago, Crystal, if we think back. And the LNG Canada project, just for context as well, is, uh, is a large LNG export facility. So it would essentially chill natural gas and then export it really in large volumes for the first time to some pretty hungry markets overseas in Asia. And these markets are hungry for gas because they're really trying to back out coal as they build up their renewables. Uh, and so as a result of that, one of the best locations in order to build a facility like this to export it happens to be on the west coast of British Columbia. And in fact, one of the best locations to build a facility like this and export gas just happens to be on the traditional territory of the Heisler First Nation. And so probably 12 years ago or more, I've been with the project seven and a half years, there was a site team that went up all the way up and down the BC coast, and they arrived at the port of Kitimat. And it really was one of the best places, as I mentioned, to look at building this large LNG facility. But one of the first things I think the site team realized is that we can't just think about doing this on our own. We need to have conversations with the Heisla, uh, with the Heisla First Nation. And the Heisla have had quite a bit of experience over the years with industrial development. I'll let Crystal speak to that. But I think it was one of those original decisions that we can't move forward without involving uh, Indigenous people, the Heisla First Nation, in early conversations that began the interaction. And we can get into this a little bit about how that all went, because it's not all easy and it wasn't all perfect. And there were moments where I think, <laughs> and we can reflect back that uh, Ellis Ross, among others, uh, were not happy. And so we needed to find our way. But I think as a result of these early engagements and over the ups and downs of the project development, I think we built a really strong relationship. And it's that type of relationship, your willingness to be transparent and have hard conversations but still get through it that I think has allowed this relationship to persist. So that's maybe a little bit of the context to, to get us started. Crystal, I'll go to you. Um, what's obviously, you know, I think Susanna makes it very clear that, you know, early conversations with yourself and the Heisla were really key. Uh, chart the history from, from your perspective and from the Heislas, because I think it's, it's what's so integral about the success of, of this project. And I think uh, Susanna alluded to, uh, first of all, sorry about that. Um, good morning, everybody. I'm coming good morning. 
uh, streamed from my home in on the on our traditional territory of the Haiza people. Um, as Susanna alluded to, uh, the relationship definitely is is not a one that's made of perfection. Um, there have been ups and downs, and I've I, I always like telling the story. Um, of when LNG Canada uh, first came to, to Kitimat, I was actually Ellis Ross's assistant at the time. And I just returned to work um, from, from taking a leave to go back to school. And it, it was literally my first day. And he, a, a Shell representative um, had shown up at our office and I was told, I'm not here. And I'm like, you're, but you're sitting right here. And <laughs> he said, I'm not here. I, I do not want, um, I'm, I'm not talking to, to them um, just at, at this point. So it didn't start out in, in, in a perfect sense uh, of that relationship. Um, so in, in, in turn, over time, uh, we definitely developed and, and took uh, the approach of doing the hard work to develop that, that solid relationship that we, that we see today. And, and I believe that that working on on the the hard aspects of of these discussions have led to the success that LNG Canada has had in our territory but also the success that we have had today. And so so let's let's talk about the journey you know 2 years ago where was the sort of the the final investment decision was made and we're now 2 years into construction um Susanna uh you know how's the relationship evolved and 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 what can you tell us about I guess what the focus areas are for both parties right now. Yeah, happy to do that, Alex. But I wonder, you know, in some ways it's easier to ask Crystal because again, we are uh, on her traditional traditional territory, and I wonder it's it's in many ways more important about how she thinks the relationship is going because it really comes down to making sure that the people in the community and in the nation are comfortable with us. So, Crystal, you want to go first, or would you like me to kick off? Sure, I, I can I can take a stab at this one for sure. Um, and I, I appreciate that. Um, again, Susanna makes a huge point when it comes to uh, involving the discussion where it comes to right down to our people and, and how they see and how they view um, our success within uh, our, our economies that exist within our territory. And I'm so proud to say that, you know, if you want to work, you're working. Uh, the opportunities are are so they're so vast right now for for our people and and anybody within our territory, um, our neighboring First Nations to be able to have that opportunity. Um, it, it it extends past our our Haiza, um, our our people. Um, so when it comes to this success, uh, I think that when you have opportunities for employment, it changes the entire landscape of homes and families within our communities it provides role models that not only exist these these benefits are and and the success isn't only going to be for today we're creating role models today for our future generations that that is essentially breaking cycles and i'm us as as the elected leadership have an agreement with our, our one of our local banks um, when it comes to providing mortgages on reserve. And it's not an easy task to have a mortgage on reserve simply because we do not own um, our land. And so as as the council, we have to we have to co-sign essentially for for our members um, when it comes to mortgages. And I've been on council for seven years. 
And this year is the most mortgages I've ever seen come across our table. And that makes me very, very emotional because we're creating that independence with our people. And it's opportunities that uh, LNG Canada has provided, but also what we're able to provide in terms of that capacity training in, in changing our people's lives today. Crystal, when you joined us in the event in, in 2018, um, first off, you joined us actually by video conference. You were an early adopter of the Zoom culture that we now have. Um, so thank you for that. But I do recall you you speaking to some of those themes. And when you were speaking, the room, Susanna, I think maybe you can attest to this. When Crystal was speaking, you could hear a pin drop in the room, just in terms of the power of the opportunity and what's at stake here. Um, and, and so I want to thank you for, for providing uh, actually an update to, to some of those, I think, the planks. Um, Susanna, I, I do want to um, bring you in and you can build off of what Crystal talked about. I mean, but I also am curious about how you think this project and this initiative fits into the um, what we're going to sort of broadly call the recovery conversation. Um, right now, I and mean, we are in a moment of crisis. Um, it's a public health crisis and sort of a nesting doll of other crises within it. Um, can, can you, can you talk to me a little bit about the importance of this project in uh, both provincial and national recovery efforts? And then maybe we can sort of bring Crystal in on some sort of Heisel specific thing. Can you build on that? Yeah. Happy to do that. And, and let me just also reflect back on that last time with Crystal. Yeah, you heard a pin drop because Crystal made a very good point. And I think it's a point that I think we all have to recognize is that the best people to speak for Indigenous people are Indigenous people. And I think Crystal's point was there are many people who like to think they speak for them, but you ought not to speak for people about their interests who aren't from that nation. So in other words, Crystal made the point that if you want to understand what's the best thing for my nation, come talk to people in my nation. And I have a hard time hearing it at that point in time. There were a lot of people who were trying to say what's in the best interest for the Heisler First Nation. And I think Crystal made a very valid point. No, the best interest of the Heisler First Nation is up to the Heisler First Nation. And so when it comes to the decisions that the Heisler made with respect to this project, and again, it's a decision for us to work together to build it and then to operate it. You know, one of the things that, you know, I'm pleased to see, and frankly, every day I wake up and want to see more of, as, Heisel, as, as Crystal mentioned, is the level of Indigenous employment on site. Um, at the end of September, I think we had on the order of, let me just see here, we had about 3,765 uh, folks working around site, just at LNG Canada. About 7% of that, you know, are Indigenous. So that's, more than obviously the, the indigenous population on a percentage basis in Canada. But that number we want to keep seeing increase. As, as Crystal said, anyone who wants to work is working. Well, now we want to see people continuing to work over the life of the project from construction into operations and continuing to work either directly on the project or I think as this previous panel just said, which I'm really excited about, having the opportunities and the contracts uh, for an ongoing relationship on that basis as well. Because I think there's huge opportunity for that as well. And I think we, who are in the decision-making capacity of contracting and procurement, need to really build in how we do that so that that doesn't become an afterthought and an oversight. But again, from the numbers perspective, I think we've seen really good employment. Um, from an overall economic recovery perspective, there was a report that came out uh, about a month ago by BC, BC and Ken Peacock, who's an economist there, who reflected on the fact that without the large capital projects like LNG Canada, site C and then the coastal gasoline project, 
the BC economy would have stalled um, last year at about 1% growth. It was at about 2.7% growth, which is more than the federal uh, growth rate for, for the year. So I think what we're seeing is it's generating a lot of economic activity, not just direct employment, but certainly throughout the province and then more broadly. And that, I think, when you think about um, how do we dig ourselves out of sort of our challenge right now from a deficit and debt perspective, we need to take a look at what types of projects can do the kind of economic development that projects like LNG Canada are delivering. So it shouldn't be growth at any cost, but it should be growth that enables development, employment, contracting and procurement across the population with Indigenous people and with their support. That's the type of economic recovery that I think we really need to be zeroing in on because it is growing the size of the pie instead of trying to take more out of the same size pie. That's how I think we, we help inspire economic recovery. By the same time, we also help to build the opportunity for Indigenous people. So it's that type of exciting thing that I think stands before us, but we have to be, we have to go after it. Because the other thing we can't forget is that there's every other nation in the world that's looking at economic recovery. We compete with these nations. So we need to be resolute, we need to be deliberate, and we need to move. Um, Crystal, did you want to build on that um, at all? Because I think there's uh, some, I think some pretty crucial um stuff in there around uh the, the unique role of of what makes this project special special um any sort of thoughts on sort of the the recovery efforts and and the elements of this project i i think uh susanna alluded to in her her comment around in the inclusion of, of first nations participation within that i think that was one of the highlights through lng canada and our relationship is that you know, a, a lot of when you Go back, Susanna reminded me about which which conversation I did through Zoom for you um, last year, and it, it goes to speak to that volume where there's that environmental aspect is completely taken out of context and and um, completely forgotten where people feel that um, they can speak from for for Heisla when it comes to our environment to our territory is that we were actively involved in all the decisions and and LNG Canada was open, transparent. We actually have a process in, in between um, our two entities where, you know, we develop the the, the packages, the, the, the permit applications together. And I think that that has always been forgotten or not even asked, actually, um, when it came to our input into this project. So I think that is a key aspect in, in success, but it also speaks to, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna recover our economy at any stake when it comes to First Nations territories. Um, that is gonna be a huge, huge important aspect moving forward. And as, as Susanna reminded me, I just wanted to go back to our previous, com the, the previous question. Um, at, at that point in time, uh, I was actually getting quite a bit of, um, backlash through social media and and on every entity um, where I was actually getting private messages from from other First Nations people um, and in calling um, in calling me a sellout calling me an apple um, saying that I was I was the the pretty much the um, description of colon a colonized um, indigenous woman and Today, when you when you talk about two years later into the construction phase and and what it's brought to our community, I just want to speak about the culture and language programs that we've been able to implement. 
and the many programs that we're able to implement to meet the needs of our people where there are there there's nobody telling us you need to do it this way there's no there's no dictatorship telling us exactly how we provide programs and services to our people so when my twin sister can speak to me in our language because of programs that we've been able to implement that honestly I, I'm, I'm, it makes me so emotional and, and so proud of the work that we're doing here in our community. So I, I just wanted to, I think that was a huge important aspect that I, I really needed to, to mention today. I really appreciate that. I think that grounding uh, some of these conversations in something very real and tangible and, um, uh, and on the ground, I think it, it really matters. I, I think it, it, uh, gives much needed context for why uh, sort of the the ancillary benefits of projects like this. The other thing, Crystal, obviously, I want to acknowledge too. I mean, that you and I are able to talk uh, like this right now. I mean, it's a testament to uh, I think some of the not as quickly as we would like to, but the closing of the broadband gap and, and connecting Indigenous communities. I think that that makes a huge difference in obviously being able to to uh, lift up. Um, your voice and, and your community's perspective right now. Um, I, 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 we've only got a couple minutes left and I think I, I want to get at sort of the nub of, of obviously what makes this project special is, okay, what can we learn from it and how can we apply it and how can other communities and, and, and companies who want to take a new approach, what can they do? So, so maybe Suzanne, I'll start with you and then we can end with crystal. Um, maybe talk about what you think the learnings are and um, and how it can be applied a, a little bit more broadly. Okay, well, I'll do my best. And again, I always like to start with Crystal because again, at the end of the day, um, it's truly what what's important and matters to, to, to Crystal and her nation in order for, for this relationship to be successful because we need to, again, um, recognize the values and the important things that, that the Heisla Nation um, would like to pursue through a project because it is their traditional territory. So we want to move forward and must move forward with their support and partnership. But again, I think is where, where we started. Um, it really has to start with, and I think some of your other panelists earlier in the day said this, it really has to start with the conversation that is nothing more than a getting to know each other, getting to build the trust not asking for anything, being able to be comfortable in a journey of learning about how we can develop, co-develop a project that can be acceptable. And there, that is starts at the very earliest stages, like I mentioned, right from site selection. It doesn't start in environmental permitting. It doesn't start in construction. It starts way at the beginning. And I think, you know, the, today that that's hopefully common sense. But um, I think if you don't do that, then then that's a problem. But then I think, it's, as I also mentioned, and we mentioned together, that um, it's not easy. Like We are going to disagree. We're going to find ourselves probably uh, not agreeing on some various different aspects, but being willing to sit down at the table to try to find the understanding and the position, and then being able to work through something that could be a solution is really what it takes. And it's, it's actually a shared set of values and commitments to achieve something. And I think with respect to, to LNG Canada and the high First Nation, I think we share those values to achieve something pretty powerful and pretty great. And so that when you have like a marriage, like when you have the squabbles, it doesn't end the marriage. You realize the power of the marriage is, is, is so important and the purpose of it that you keep going, you find ways of working through it. And so I guess I just say that, um, 
what makes it work is like any strong relationship. You keep working at it. Crystal, last word to, uh, to yourself. Um, I think Susanna nailed it perfectly. I mean, on, on the final investment decision uh, celebrations, I, I actually, I, I constantly in, in my, in my discussions with not only LNG Canada's team of Mike Eddy, Susanna Pierce and, and Andy Callitz and talking about how important this relationship was, but also to their investors, to their, to their board um, was that on the final investment decision, I think we, we actually, we, we got married and, and it was going to be that focus of, of working through all, all these. And, and those hard discussions have not stopped. Just because the instruction, the construction has started and, and it's it's being built, those hard discussions continuously happen between both of our two entities. So it, it's continuously working on it and putting that effort in. Um, I think it's uh, aligning and LNG Canada did it perfectly in, in terms of finding out what was important to, to Haiza when it came to our culture, to our territory, but also to our future. And, and where we saw our people in, say, five to ten years. And through the construction phase, through the um, building it up to FID and then the construction phase, we're, we're not new to um, having people like Andy Callitz, Mike Eddy, and Susanna, unfortunately, leave at a certain stage within a project. And I think what is important, and I think what they've done a really excellent job at, is also having people that come into those and replace those um, key players is having those same values felt through. So Peter Zebedee replacing um, Andy Callitz, those values are still there. That focus is still there. Um, having uh, Mike Eddy's replacement have a strong focus on, on seeing and where we see our people in 10 years and having that uh, key uh, goals when it comes to having our people working for the next 10, 20 years. So I think that that is also a key aspect when it comes to those changeovers um, in in this this entire process. I think that's a really fantastic place to end it because I think it ties together um, a lot of the themes that have been discussed at, at the two previous conversations as well, just sort of that connective tissue that is, is really integral to the success of these projects over time. Um, Crystal Smith, Susanna Pierce, I want to thank you very, very much for joining us today um, early for you. And, and uh, but we really appreciate an up on, update on this project. I think it's pretty special. So we're, we're going to come knocking again and uh, maybe have a conversation in, uh, in another year. But uh, thank you very much, uh, Crystal and Susanna. We really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. Um, okay. I am, uh, I am now very pleased to uh, actually... Um, uh, hand things off right now to uh, my good friend Sahir Khan, who is at the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy uh, at the University of Ottawa. And Sahir, you are going to um, steer uh, our final conversation today. And you got a lot to work with, Sahir, because I think the, the, the theme of this final conversation is Indigenous participation in major projects. We, we've scratched at the surface of it in our conversation with Minister Miller, um, uh, the, uh, the update from the Center of Excellence, and as you just heard, obviously, a major project with, with LNG Canada. So you got a lot to work with, and, and to help you out, you've got a pretty great uh, panel with, uh, with, you've got Neil Edwards, who is the Executive Director of the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. Uh, Neil, hello. 
You also have uh, Brian McGuigan, the manager of Aboriginal policy at the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Brian, it's good to see you. And uh, and, and Bing Giroux, who is with Sedgwick uh, Consulting. Um, and uh, and so see here, I'm going to hand things over to you. We're going to go for about uh, 30, 30 or so minutes. Um, and I would ask people if you have, there have been questions in the chat about this topic in particular, I will do my best to get those to you to hear. Um, but if there are people watching that want to ask stuff specifically, um, again, just drop it in the Q and a function or, or on the chat online. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. So here over to you. Alec, thanks so much for this. Um, this is actually, I, I think we're, we're, we were kind of excited planning this, uh, this session. Cause I think we're going to get as, as gritty as, as, as people are going to want in terms of the details um, on kind of three dimensions, I'm going to ask our, our esteemed panelists to kind of help us with three things. Um, we're at this kind of watershed moment in reconciliation, and there's an opportunity to switch from a paradigm of consultation to one of economic engagement. And um, our experts here, I think, are going to help us do that on three dimensions. We're going to ask them to talk about opportunities and ask them to talk about impediments to those opportunities. And then the last kind of phase is the solutions. Like, where do we go from here? What can we do very tangibly? And it's a kind of an important moment because we're heading into a federal budget, uh, likely in, 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 in the spring, late winter. And every opportunity for these ideas to be part of that discussion uh, to kind of not only help uh, First Nations communities kind of recover from, from the pandemic and the recession, but all of Canada. And so this is kind of the scale of opportunities I've heard from Bing, Nilo, and, and Brian that have been discussed today. So um, first of all, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat Alex's thanks for, for your participation. Um, very fortunate to have you here. But I'd like to ask each of you to kind of talk about the opportunities, uh, both what you see in terms of the future of what's, what's there uh, in front of us and kind of what we might be actually missing out on because we're not um, dealing with all the the impediments, but I'll start with first the opportunities. What's out there? Um, Neil, should we start with you? Thanks, uh, Sahir, and, and good morning from the uh, traditional territory of the Coast Salish people, the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh. Uh, Certainly for, for our members of the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, we're over 70 members strong in six provinces and territories. Uh, we have $7 billion of projects that we're currently uh, involved in and helping our communities assess the opportunity to participate as equity owners in. Um, so I, I'm, I'm gonna start there. Uh, there's, there's a variety of different asset classes we deal with, including hydroelectric generation, uh, electricity transmission, uh, LNG pipelines. Uh, we're getting requests to get involved in all season roads uh, into northern communities. Uh, so it, as I see it here, there's a, a sort of a dynamic uh, a shift in between uh, a focus of the traditional natural resource sectors of mining, uh, natural gas, uh, oil and gas, uh, and, uh, and an emerging opportunity uh, in the renewable sector, uh, green technology, uh, net zero initiatives, uh, including an electrification. And I think electrification is a huge opportunity, uh, particularly in Western Canada for Indigenous communities to, to lead and become owners in. Uh, as we see governments move towards policy that uh, 
uh, will require proponents uh, who propose industrial projects to move towards electrification. Uh, there's going to be a greater need for transmission infrastructure, for generation projects. Uh, all of these assets cross Indigenous traditional territory. And so we're working to ensure that our members have the tools and expertise to make informed business decisions about their ability to participate in these assets as equity owners. Uh, it, that, that in, a, in, a, in a broad scan is, is the opportunities as I see them. I, and I think interesting that some of these, uh, many of these are actually lining up with economic objectives of the federal government outlined in the last uh, um, fiscal statement, a fiscal and economic statement. So there is no conflict here in terms of agendas. We're looking at unlocking opportunities that are directionally useful for all parties. Uh, Bing, I'll, I'll ask you maybe next to kind of talk about the opportunities here before us and um, and why it's important to kind of unlock these opportunities, both for First Nations and for Canadians, Canada as a whole. Thanks, Sahir. Um, I'm also calling from uh, Coast Salish Territory. I'm a stone's throw away from Tawasan Nation, which was the first modern urban treaty. So, Haishka for having me. Um, yeah, this is this is the next horizon I see this. We, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, Indigenous communities weren't even in the room. Then we started doing impact benefit agreements, mm -hmm. and uh, First Nations were seeing at least some of the benefit of projects in, in their territories. Now we're seeing an interest in equity and ownership, and companies are offering those things, but that, that, that is the next horizon. How do we enable Indigenous communities to actually take ownership? And we're seeing phenomena emerge to help this. We see the AIOC in Alberta, the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, but there's still a huge challenge. There are programs for small businesses that want to get involved. And sometimes governments are really interested when it's a huge project like TMX. But in between that, there is very little access to capital for, for, for First Nations to get in at the right stage of what I call the risk curve. Getting people involved, whether it's Indigenous communities or other investors, after you finish construction or during construction, when the risk is diminished, that's easy. But if you want to get Indigenous communities involved much earlier, where they have a, a, a say in design and a say in how the project will be rolled out, so if they can help enable a project, which I think is something we all want to work towards, you're going to have to bring Indigenous community participation and ownership further up that risk curve. And frankly, you know, that's something that Nilo is, and his organization is dealing with, and it's a huge, huge challenge. We need, frankly, to move from consultation to consensus and from accommodation to partnership. And the only way we're going to do that is if Indigenous communities are actually owning the levers of economic power and, and getting that economic reconciliation in their community. So, so what I'm excited about is that there's an interest, and I'm hearing it you know, in government and, and in industry and organizations like, like NILOS, how can we help Indigenous communities get, frankly, let's be very specific, access to cheap capital you know, so they can actually get a return on an investment. They need to be able to borrow at a rate that makes sense for them to invest. And right now, we're seeing maybe this is systemic racism. Maybe it's just the nature of banking. First Nations are not able to get access to capital mm -hmm. at a decent rate in order for them to make those kinds of investments and see a, a legitimate return that's actually going to see some some uh, return that's going to help benefit their community. So, so I see this as a real opportunity. This is the next horizon, but we got to get over that horizon. And so, Bing, I think what you're articulating is is very much that idea that um, consultation, when maybe it's not meaningful or you're just trying to tick a box, is very different from meaningful economic participation and engagement. I think the other point I find particularly compelling what you're saying is that when that engagement takes place matters. 
the level of risk being um, assumed also matters because there are rewards associated with risk being taken at an earlier phase of the project. And, and that also helps to define moving from mere consultation to, to engagement. Brian, I'm, I'm going to turn to you, Brian. Um, and, and by the way, I think you've set up that the, the next round we'll talk about the, the really gritty impediments that are in, in place and, and love to hear each of you kind of talk about the um, on the ground, what's really happening. And Brian, I want, maybe I, I want to have you kind of close the section on, on opportunities, what we're missing uh, by not yeah, uh, it, engaging the right way. Thanks for hearing. And it's great. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm talking to you from Calgary this morning. I'm in uh, the Treaty 7 territory and also Region 3 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. Uh, it's a snowy, wintry morning this morning. We've finally broken our unfortunate warm spell, broken the spell. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was listening, I was thinking about this this morning uh, before we started, and I was going to go almost exactly where Bing went and talking about uh, I think stages of development in terms of how industry indigenous relationships have evolved over the last 20 years or so. Um, and so here, when you talked about moving from consultation to engagement, I guess what I see is, yeah, consultation. I think one of the stages that we moved into in the early 2000s was consultation and deeper consultation and deeper consultation that led to economic opportunity for communities. And that started the, the, the business conversations between the resource sectors generally uh, and indigenous communities. Um, I'll just, I'll throw some quick numbers out for you. Oil sands companies uh, between 2013 and 2016 procured on average $1.8 billion per year from indigenous owned com companies. Compare that to the entire federal government, just to put it into context, uh, I think the entire federal government procurement in that same period was just under $150 million. So really significant economic opportunities arising from resource development there. Indigenous companies are 40 times more likely to engage in the natural resource sector than they are in other sectors of the Canadian economy. Employment, uh, interestingly, Susanna's number was, I think she said it was 7% for their project. Uh, for the for our sector, for oil and gas, it's about 6% across the whole sector of people, of employees who self-identify. So we're seeing, there's uh, there's a study done by Ken Coates a couple of years ago uh, of engagement between oil and gas and Indigenous people. And what he identified then was procurement is king. Yeah, we all do the consultation process, but really it's the business opportunities and it's the procurement opportunities that come with development. Um, I'll just, one of the things, you know, somebody else, earlier this morning talked about the uh, the nested dolls of our crisis that we're in right now. Uh, our sector is in kind of a double whammy. We feel like we're in the kind of the smallest of those nested uh, dolls at the bottom of that crisis. But uh, the Indian Resource Council, the First Nations who are members of the Indian Resource Council, have seen their royalties drop in the last year about 95% drop in royalties from oil and gas production on reserve. So there is a real challenge right now. The opportunities are there. And I think uh, where we are starting to see the movement, obviously, is toward economic inclusion, like being talked about, moving into equity participation in projects. So some quick examples for people of places where we've seen engagement in the natural resource sector. Mi'kmaq First Nations buying 50% of Clearwater Seafoods, for example. I would include the fishery as a as a natural resource uh, extraction. Uh, natural Law Group, five Cree First Nations from Saskatchewan taking a $1 billion position in the KXL pipeline. Um, 
Fort Mackay of the Miccosoe Cree buying about 50, just under 50% of a tank farm for $500 million. All of those, I, I think all of those are privately financed positions, uh, but it is a challenge to be able to put together the financing for those kinds of acquisitions. And I think uh, that has been the challenge is how do we manage to get the financing in place to get those transactions to happen so First Nations can start involving themselves in the Canadian economy in a real way. And you start to see the changes that Crystal Smith talked about when she was talking so passionately, the changes in people's lives. And I think that's a really good jump off point because I think you've highlighted some of the impediments that are preventing us from kind of in First Nations communities accessing those benefits and those opportunities. And on multiple dimensions, right? We're talking about financing. Um, we've talked about in our pre-chat about yeah. capacity. I'd like maybe, maybe Brian, we'll start with you just to talk about specifically the impediments um, and how they actually uh, stop progress, how they limit the type of engagement that would be meaningful on an economic basis uh, for First Nations communities. And and I think that's good. And to be as vivid as we can about those so that they're not theoretical or conceptual, these are what yeah. actually stops these projects from happening. Okay. And, and I can say, you know what, I can speak to those from my experience being involved in negotiating IBAs and that kind of work before I came to CAP. I can speak to it from my experience of working within the industry now. Uh, I, and I think it's really important to hear it from people like Crystal Smith who are in the communities and see the real challenges. But this is my perspective on it, is that um, I think I largely see two sets of challenges. One is the access to capital, one that Bing has already started to talk about. So how do you access capital in a timely way and in a way that makes projects uh, competitive and sustainable? The other area of co- a challenge that I see um, is around the business capacity. How do we develop capacity to be able to make decisions, business decisions, uh, in a smart and timely manner so that First Nations and other Indigenous groups can participate in the business opportunities? Um, I've seen, I've worked with one of our member companies who has spent about 10 years developing, helping a First Nation to develop one of their businesses. So that business went from being the junior partner in a JV on a subcontract in a big project. Uh, Ten years later, that company was strong enough that they bid on a major contract on their own and won the bid. So it's that long-term relationship that enables business capacity to develop. How do you make those decisions? How do you build the business? How do you have that long-term horizon? It's longer than, you know, say, a four-year election cycle. You need to be able to have that long-term horizon and be able to make the decisions and have a decision-making process that is insulated from community politics. So you have a, you know, you're, we talked about, oh, we need to separate business and politics. This is one of those places where you need to have a business making, a business decision making process that's insulated. I'll just make a little bit of a comment here. One of the trends that I've seen in the last five years uh, that has been so encouraging is, uh, and I mentioned at the beginning, this is just my perspective. Indigenous people need to speak about what they need. But one of the things that I've really seen that I think is really encouraging is the development of Indigenous-led organizations that are focused on trying to build these capacities. NILO's organization is a leader of all of those, I think. Uh, we also see groups like the Indian Resource Council. They've, they've been around for a long time, but they've shifted their focus in the last few years. Uh, the National Chiefs Coalition has the same kind of a focus on how do we develop businesses. Uh, the Indigenous Resource Network. 
Uh, Canadian Council on Aboriginal Business is another example. So all of those organizations will be really helpful, but it's an interesting dynamic that we're seeing those sorts of organizations get off the ground and be successful, and they're obviously answering a need in Indigenous communities. I'll leave it there. Brian has given us actually two really good jump-off points here. Um, Nilo, I want to hand yep. off the, the capacity, which is near and dear to your heart, that capacity building uh, issue as how, how that's an, uh, the capacity itself is an impediment. And then Bing, I'll ask you to, after Nilo's gone through it, talk about the financing impediment that you highlighted at the beginning, teased us a bit, but like to kind of have you elaborate on that as well. <laughs> so, so we'll start with Nilo on, on capacity and, and how that impediment or removal of impediment is absolutely critical to the nature of engagement um, and, and all the way to co-development as some, one of our attendees as he, as texted in. Uh, so here you might have to get your hook ready to, to stop me here because I might go on too long on this point. But anyway, here I go. So I, I think the important thing to recognize here is capacity across the board in our member communities is, is incredibly imbalanced. You, you have folks who have familiarity with doing uh, business deals with proponents all the time. And then you have communities for no fault of their own. It, you know, it gets back to a number of different impediments. And, and really, the, I'm going to say it, the history of colonialism in this country that has, has caused a lot of it, uh, where the capacity uh, isn't where it should be. Uh, and the communities have, you know, taken steps to join organizations like ours to, to get extra help uh, in, in bringing that up to, to a level playing field. Um, these projects that we deal with are complex. Uh, they're challenging projects. They uh, consist of regulatory processes, tight timelines, competitive capital, everything that First Nations don't have to be successful. Uh, so, you know, for the majority of our members, we're starting at a disadvantage. Uh, and, and I think this is a, is a very important gap to recognize as we get into an era where now the federal government has introduced legislation around UNDRIP. Uh, and uh, thinking about UNDRIP in a capacity, a business capacity sense, our organization, the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, is dedicated to ensuring our members have the tools to make free, prior, and informed business decisions about resource development. This means getting in on the ground level of development, mm. uh, being able to be the proponent yourself at times, uh, but at times when that's not possible, being able to walk with the proponent right from the start. And, and Bing talked about, you know, further down the risk curve, uh, well, we want we want to be at the start of that risk curve and 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 to work with the proponent to design a deal that community members can see their values reflected back at them in. That that's what we're driving towards here, and and there's many challenges uh, in the way, but there's also many opportunities. And you know, ten times out of ten, done right, the opportunities are going to outweigh the challenges. We, we need to be able to uh, design a system here in this country that recognizes 
the importance, the true importance of meaningful partnerships with indigenous communities on the development within their traditional territories. Uh, this means addressing capacity. It also means addressing development costs. First Nations do not have access generally to the dollars that have to be put most at risk for development. They are often beholden to proponents and proponents' data under which to make their decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not making an independent decision. First Nations have to be empowered to make their own decisions. Uh, they need the, the resourcing in order to do it. And, uh, you know, I think it's incumbent upon organizations like ours uh, to work with different levels of government and proponents to find uh, solutions uh, to these challenges. And we're doing that today. The last thing I'm going to say is there's also a tendency on the side of proponents uh, to design uh, their business strategy around reducing risk to themselves. And that often means, you know, what's good for the proponent, not necessarily what's good for the Indigenous community. Uh, a lot of deals are designed to maximize benefits for shareholders, not necessarily maximize social benefits for communities. And as we get into the era of UNDRIP and free prior and informed decisions, Corporate Canada has to reevaluate those strategies so that they align appropriately with the values of Indigenous communities. Thing, if um, if Nilo's even more successful than he is now, when he starts to help address capacity issues, um, building confidence in First Nations communities to do these deals, to be at the at the earlier part of the cycle to get bigger shares of these projects, to be able to get be better benefits. Um, uh, on the social and uh, other dimensions, they can't do that if they can't get the financing. So, it's, can you take yeah. can you take us through this very real obstacle that we have right now, impediment um, in, in in realizing these opportunities? You know, Neil hit on it already. He's talking about seven billion of projects. I'm working on a number of projects where this is a very real issue. There is government support for small business, indigenous business, and sometimes there's support for these massive projects, but there is very little support for everything in between mm -hmm. from 10 million to half a billion or what have you. What's going on here is there is there is venture capital out there, and, and people will say, well, why doesn't the private sector just do this? Why does government have to be involved? Because that, that venture capital doesn't include indigenous people. So those indigenous communities want to be involved in the project at the very beginning so they can help design it. That's where we get consensus. Let's talk C69. Let's talk free power informed consent. How do you get consensus? Well, consensus and free power informed consent is also an economic decision. So in order for me to get under the hood of a company, it's best that I own a piece of it. So I can see the, the, the board minutes. I can see the finances. You need to be involved. And that way you can also design the project to meet some of those things that Neil just talked about. So not only is it a benefit to shareholders, it's a benefit to the local community. So what do we need? We need access to inexpensive capital. The company, a, a, a pipeline will have a rate of return of 9%. Well, that means I have to borrow money probably less than six for me to, to make it worth my while. Indigenous communities aren't able to find that capital. And so I think this is where Economic reconciliation actually does need the government to take a role. How do I provide Indigenous communities a way to participate in projects, frankly, that are a little more risky? But listen, government lends money to other risky ventures. Why not Indigenous people? So they can get involved a little earlier, so they can get involved at a cheaper amount because capital, you know, it, it, getting involved earlier will be less expensive because it's higher risk. So if I can borrow money at 
you know, 3% and I'm looking at a, at a 9% return if and when the project is approved and constructed in three, four years from, from now, that's something I can sink my teeth into. Uh, and I think as a participant, that's something Indigenous communities can sink their teeth, teeth into. And then you're there the whole length of the project from concept to environmental assessment to design to construction to operation. And it's your project. And those benefits that Nilo talked about that would nef- t- uh, typically flow perhaps only to shareholders, are also flowing to the community. This cheap money, I can't beat this horse hard enough. This cheap money is the fundamental impediment we are now encountering on Indigenous economic reconciliation. Companies are offering equity. They are entering impact benefits agreements. First Nations are at the table at a government-to-government level, but they still can't get a piece of the pie. I think that's kind of, I, th- I think, led us to kind of our, our, our last kind of topic here on the solutions. Um, Brian, I'm going to ask you maybe to pick up on on, on Bing's mm-hmm. uh, jump off point here, which is the financing and the access to capital and other things that you think kind of lead to solutions to kind of realize opportunities on the terms of First Nations that Nilo articulated, right? So not just on a commercial basis, meaning all those other tests that are critical to getting long-term buy-in for sustainable projects. Well, I think... Uh, so here, I think part of what I would say is uh, is a couple of pieces. I think from the industry perspective, I think, I, I mean, the CEOs that I talk to uh, among our members uh, are clear that major projects won't be built in Canada without Indigenous participation or Indigenous support. So if we're talking about trying to kickstart our economy, uh, finding solutions to enable that participation into the projects is a key piece to that. It's also, I'll just say, this is a piece that I want, a message I really want to deliver today is, and we heard it really clearly from Crystal Smith, but the, the impact that these communi- this, that these projects have in communities is immeasurable. The impact on people's lives. I also, I think of these projects as a kickstart for reconciliation. It's a piece, the other, there's a lot of other tasks that are involved in reconciliation, you know, writing injustices from the past. Uh, resolving historic grievances that need to be addressed. This can happen much more quickly. It can be changes can be measured in months rather than decades. And it's critical that we move these things forward quickly. Uh, finding these kinds of solutions, uh, to both the capacity side and the financing side, I think are critical to getting change started in Canada. And if we talk about rebuilding better, this is, in my mind, one of the most critical parts of rebuilding better is finding solutions to the challenges that Bing has suggested, has identified. I don't I know if I answered you, your question you, here, but well, I took a run at some messages that I really no, you, want you, to. You, 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 uh, you, know, you did because, um, you know, at the, at the IFSC, we, we've been doing a lot of work with um, the Assembly First Nation and the Caring Society dealing with reform of the yeah. child and family services system, right? And there's so many more Indigenous yeah. kids in foster care than you do on indigenous kids and we yeah, can look yeah. at territories where you know across the territory you'll have economic opportunity in one part of the territory and their social welfare numbers are so much mm-hmm. better whereas there's yeah. you know you're dealing with fundamental poverty issues that are yeah. trapping families and their kids in 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 these very very challenging social circumstances and so i think we we, we get in this habit of kind of delinking economy and well-being yeah. and the reality and is you can. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. Right. So here, you know, go ahead. Bishop. Sorry, just quick. Red Cruise Mine and Talton Territory. I was involved in the IBA yeah. on that thing. Red, the Talton Nation doesn't have one kid in external care. Right. Talton Nation because of mining in their territory. Not one. Yep. 
So a quick Elon. comment on that. I'll yeah, pick up ahead. on that. Go I did some work yes. for the Tall Tan as well. And there you've got capacity to make decisions. They've got a really clear governance structure. They can make their business decisions. They've got some best practices around some of those things. Um, and I'm not sure how they've solved some of the access to capital type issues that they've had. But there, there you've got some strong capacity going on there where they've got process that's in place. Nilo, I'm gonna. We're, we're, no, no, no worries, Brian. Nilo, we're gonna ask you maybe to to talk about solutions now. Um, to build on some of the the capacity issues you talked about, realizing economic opportunities. Um, we've got to get this in before Alex yanks us out because we're we're a little over now. But it's it's hard to stop once we got got going. But you're you're yours to have the final word here. Well, there there's an opportunity, I I think, for uh, you know the public sector the private sector and, and really civil society to work with us on, uh, on these solutions. Um, certainly, we are working with government on access to capital. It's going slower than we like. I think uh, the federal government in particular has an opportunity to take a good hard look at the mandate of the Canada Infrastructure Bank and see how it can be uh, designed to really facilitate access to capital to Indigenous people who are looking to partner in projects. We also have the First Nations Finance Authority. It's a great vehicle for access to capital. We're currently working with them. Uh, they, they need to be supported so they can do more deals like the Clearwater Seafoods deal. Uh, that's the benchmark that we're looking for. Uh, certainly our members are excited by that. And the other thing that we're getting into that we're going to release is a significant report on the Indigenous worldview around ESG investing principles. Uh, and, and this is a, a body of research that will come out from us in January. And I think, you know, as far as the investment community, the project finance sector is concerned, we need to be paying attention to that as Canada moves to implement under it. Because if ESG investing principles are not aligned with the principles of UNDRIP, we have a serious problem. Neil, maybe it's a good opportunity for us to maybe make a plug for your conference, uh, March 18th, 19, 2021, Indigenous Sustainable Investment Conference uh, that's going to be run by your organization. So we'll uh, have uh, ask Alex to kindly send out a link uh, to this event as well. Let people know there are going to be follow-up discussions. So this is the end of it. Um, I'm going to ask each of you maybe... Um, uh, I know we didn't talk about this earlier, but we, we've got a federal budget coming in 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 the spring, late uh, winter. If there is something that the federal government could do, I want you each to maybe propose a measure that you think will deal with both realizing this opportunity or deal with one of these impediments. But fundamentally, as uh, some of our, our our attendees have been asking about changing the nature of the dialogue from consultation to engagement. And I'm going to ask each of you one thing that the federal government could do uh, to kind of push this uh, along and, and make economic reconciliation part of the larger reconciliation agenda. Bing, I'm going to start with you. Okay, pretty easy one. Repurpose uh, funds that have already been allocated to the Canadian Infrastructure Bank and within Infrastructure Canada, maybe some other places, to a little bit higher risk First Nation equity participation in major industrial infrastructure projects across the country. Okay. Ryan? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think I would, uh, well, then I'll try to focus on a different area than that, and I'll go to the capacity piece, and I'd say uh, create programs or, or supports uh, that are identified through organizations like Major Projects uh, Coalition for helping 
First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities make clear business decisions and investment decisions. So I don't know what that looks like. It, it needs Indigenous input into how that program would look. Because, Neil, you've talked about one of the obstacles here being that if there isn't capacity, there isn't confidence. And suspicion will lead to rejection of deals, whether the, the, the merits are there or not. But that confidence is actually critical to realizing the opportunities. But I'm going I'm to ask you for your 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 Christmas wish list uh, for the next federal budget. So, so a couple of things. Uh, there needs to be strategic investments in capacity, particularly coming off the heels of the implementation <coughs> of the UNDRIP legislation, or the tabling, rather. Um, if there isn't sufficient capacity to engage in that conversation, it will not be the success that Indigenous communities are hoping it will be. Uh, second thing I will say is, in order for our economy to grow and recover in the way that we want it to, we have to unlock the wealth that is sitting idle within Indigenous communities and do everything we can to ensure that communities <coughs> can tap into the wealth that is being generated off of their traditional territories and become economic contributors in a major way, in, basically get into the mainstream of Canada's economy for the first time in a major way. And, and that means, as Bing said, access to capital. If you don't have the access to capital, you can't do anything. And I, I think it's also worth um, maybe considering, we learned some things about the COVID pandemic where gaps between have and have nots were actually exacerbated. So issues like broadband infrastructure, it isn't just the economic opportunity, but all the social services, healthcare, education, others that have kept First Nations communities from fully participating in those opportunities could be a major, that's my plug for something I think is going to be very important for the upcoming budget to see First Nations infrastructure improved. Water obviously is is a critical component to this and, and, and well publicized, but without broadband, how do you unlock some of these other uh, opportunities, including the capacity building that Nilo uh, has been has been highlighting. Nilo, you want to jump in? So here, uh, you know, there, there's no better way in this country than to have Indigenous communities self-deliver that infrastructure by harnessing mm -hmm. wealth generated from their traditional territories. You know, build their own broadband, build their own houses and roads. This is what I'm hearing from our members across the country right. is they want to have the economic means to address their own infrastructure deficit. It's a, and, and this is what uh, I think Brian highlighted the fact that you can, if you get first nation communities engaged as participants on the small projects, they will then be the leads, the prime contractors on the bigger ones down the road. Alex, I think we've uh, hit the time mark um, pretty closely without uh, having to cut off these uh, fine gentlemen and, and their expertise. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna pull the rug earlier, but your last question was just so good to hear. I had to, I had to hear it through. Um, so thank you very much for for doing a fantastic job moderating this discussion. Um, uh, Nilo, Bang, Brian, thank you very much for your time. Um, and I am going to uh, just very quickly walk through what we've got coming up here at uh, at 2020 with the Crisis to Resilience series. Um, 
before I do that, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, this has been, you know, the, the graphic for this series has been sort of a topographic map. Like, uh, and and I think this event in particular really helped provide like a roadmap, uh, both lay of the land and I think a roadmap for a way forward on these issues. So we really appreciate um, uh, doing so. Uh, I, I will. I will very quickly. Just if you do want to catch up on this series, you can do that across our platforms. I've said, as I said at the top, YouTube, Facebook, um, or on your your favorite podcast app, you can listen to a lot of the conversations that we've had uh, throughout this series. Um, I also, again, want to thank my sustaining partners who helped Canada do Canada 2020 do what we do. Um, it, like I said, conversations like this happen because we have the capacity to do so. And that's thank in large part to, to this group of companies here. I also want to give a special thank you to our partners at Rio Tinto and Enbridge who have been a, a, a real uh, close collaborator and uh, a very intentional partner on this conversation. So I want to give thanks to, to them and their teams. Uh, as I mentioned off the top, this is this is not the final event in this series. That actually will happen next week on Wednesday, December 16th. Uh, we are going to be uh, talking about energy transformation. This actually event, if you're tracking, it was scheduled earlier. Uh, we've had to postpone it. It will happen next week on the 16th on Wednesday. Uh, Minister O'Regan will be joining us, uh, as will uh, the Honorable Anne McClellan, and a really fantastic response panel. We'll have more information on that shortly. Um, that's it for that, that's it for me. I want to thank you all very much for tuning in uh if you have feedback if you have ideas if you have um uh, things that you want to share with us and our team we're listening i'm alex at canada2020.ca and uh, we look forward to uh talking to you again soon so uh again from the uh, traditional territory of the algonquin and anishinaabe people miigwech thank you very much for tuning in and we'll see you again soon